Welcome to the Modern Law Library podcast. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and today I have our summer reading recommendations for you, followed by a re-airing of one of our 2018 episodes that's become relevant again. It's my conversation with Mary Ziegler about her book, Beyond Abortion. But first, my pop culture picks. Compiling these lists always feels very weird and revealing because it makes me go back over the past six months of my life and see what I've spent my free time consuming. And I don't know about you, but since the pandemic started, I've had a hard time sitting down and reading for fun like I used to. I'm not reaching for great works of literature. I'm going to comfort reads or my own hyper-specific interests. But we're all friends here, so I will share what I've been reading, watching, and listening to. First up, it feels appropriate to start this with some mysteries and crime type books and series that I've been mostly listening to on audiobook. The first one is the Medicus Mysteries. This is by Ruth Downey, and it centers around a Roman army doctor and what he gets up to in Roman era Britain. And I really enjoyed this one. It has about, I don't know, like eight books so far in the series. And it's a really interesting look at that era and relations between Roman army soldiers and the native Britons. Next up, speaking of Britain, is Alison Montclair's mystery series, Sparks and Bainbridge Mysteries. So this is a series about two women in post-World War II London who start a marriage bureau to matchmake people. They both have somewhat complex histories. One of them was in the Secret Service during World War II, and the other one spent time in a lunatic asylum after the death of her soldier husband and is now attempting to regain her status in society and retake custody of her son from her in-laws. Anyway, it's good fun if you like post-World War II era London mystery series. It, It just feels good on the brain. Now, the next one, this is an interesting one. So this is Helene Thurston, and these are some translated books. The first one's called An Elderly Lady is Up to No Good, and the second one is An Elderly Lady Must Not Be Crossed. I almost don't want to tell you too much about these, but this is essentially an old lady serial killer and how she gets away with things, but they're essentially books of short stories. Yeah, it's a good listen. If you're listening to them on audiobook, it's a good read. It's it's pretty fascinating. I do recommend them. You end up siding with her on some of her uh, some of her adventures, I'll say. Then if you want something just totally light and breezy, again, feels good on the brain. The series by Jesse Q. Sutanto. It only has two books in it so far. The first one is Dial A for Aunties. And the Next one, which just came out, is Four Aunties in a Wedding. And this is a Chinese-Indonesian family who's immigrated to the United States and starts up a wedding service where they do the hair and makeup and the, the wedding organizing. And it's about the young woman whose aunties have, you know, formed this wedding company. And it, too, contains mysteries and bodies that need to be moved. So recommend those. Moving on from the cozy mysteries and crime to memoir. So this is one that I particularly enjoyed this spring. 
and I, I do recommend it. It's called Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking. It's by Anya von Bremsen. Now, she emigrated from Moscow to Philadelphia with her mother, Larissa, when she was 10 years old in the 1970s. And in this book, Anya, who has become a James Beard award-winning cookbook author, makes a series of feasts with her mother that celebrate, or if not celebrate, just recognize the food that was happening in different decades during the Soviet era. Anya's mother, Larissa, is from Jewish background. Her father's Ukrainian. And I also, after listening to her memoir, where she talks about this really interesting childhood and then going back after the fall of the Soviet Union to Moscow, was just really interested. And I picked up her cookbook, Please to the Table, which is recipes from all across the former Soviet Union, including, you know, Ukraine, Uzbekistan, Georgia, just some really great recipes in there. Next up, I feel like we all could use advice in some areas of our life. And uh, here is a really kind-hearted one. Now, this is called How to Keep House While Drowning, A Gentle Approach to Cleaning and Organizing by Casey Davis. And Casey Davis is a therapist who wrote this after experiencing postpartum depression and the state of her house really got away from her. I will admit to you guys that uh, during the pandemic, when there haven't been visitors coming over to my house, I too have let clutter get away from me. And what I love about this book is how she approaches cleaning, not as something that you, you know, use to berate yourself for why can't I keep organized, but seeing chores as, you know, this is doing a kindness to your future self. And it's not a reflection of your own self-worth. So if you've been struggling with organizing and cleaning, I, I would recommend picking this up. It's how to keep house while drowning. In terms of advice, this is also going to be relevant to our later or much earlier 2018 discussion with Mary Ziegler. I've been buying this book for a number of young people in my life. It is The New Handbook for a Post-Row America. The Complete Guide to Abortion Legality, Access, and Practical Support by Robin Marty. The most recent edition that's been released so far was March 30th, 2021. Uh, she has been anticipating a post-Roe America for quite some time. And then I am going to close out the reading section of this by talking about one of my deep interests, which is adventure nonfiction about when going outside goes wrong essentially. I don't know what it is about failed mountaineering expeditions it calls to me. I reread Into Thin Air by John Krakauer all the time, but I recently read another book in this sort of vein that I thought was really interesting and, and gives a look at, you know, what rescuers are having to consider when they decide whether or not to go out to search for people who have gone on these dangerous expeditions. And the book is Denali's Howl, The Deadliest Climbing Disaster on America's Wildest Peak by Andy Hall. Andy Hall was a child when this happened. This was 1967. And he was actually in the Denali National Park because his father was in an administrative position there. And he goes back and he looks at what went wrong and how seven young men in an expedition of, I believe, 12 or 13, 
ended up dying on Denali. All right. So that seems like a good place to end reading. When it comes to podcasts, I have started listening to a handful of new podcasts that you might enjoy some of these. The first one is Brown History Podcast with Asim Zafar. And he has conducted a number of really interesting interviews with people who are looking at history in Asia. And he also talks to, you know, filmmakers and and writers. And, you know, I, I thought his episode on the Bengali famine was is excellent. And so, yeah, I enjoyed that one. The next one is called Dish. It's with the BBC Radio 1 DJ, Nicholas Grimshaw, and a Michelin star chef, Angela Hartnett. And it's like sitting in on a dinner party because it essentially is. Nick Grimshaw, the DJ, basically provides the cocktail and the, the chat. And Angela Hartnett shares the recipe that she's put together. And then they invite someone to dinner who they just want to talk with. And my favorite episode is with some stars of Ted Lasso, if you guys have enjoyed the show Ted Lasso. Speaking of enjoying the show Ted Lasso, there is a podcast called The Icebox with Isaac K. Lee, who is doing a series called The Book of Lasso, where he analyzes episode by episode the show Ted Lasso in advance of the third season, which we hope is going to come this fall. And he invites people on to, to talk about it. I really enjoyed that one. The next podcast I'd like to recommend is kind of in the same vein as my adventure nonfiction. It's Get Out Alive with wildlife biologist Ashley Bray and her best friend Nick. And it's all about animal encounters that went wrong, usually out in the wild, but sometimes, you know, more domestically like with dogs. But each episode, they will talk about, say, grizzly encounters and both how you can keep safe and, you know, descriptions of some events where things did not stay safe. And I just find it really fascinating. So that's Get Out Alive. And then the last one that I'll recommend, I don't think I've recommended this on this podcast yet, is Maintenance Phase with Aubrey Gordon and Michael Hobbs. If you've ever thought to yourself, why was I told that eggs were bad and now eggs are good and now eggs are bad? They look at the various science behind nutrition fads and what odd claims have been made about various diets and really drill into what was behind them. And usually it's just total bunk. So that's a fascinating listen. And then I'm just going to round out by talking about a few TV shows and some movies that I've seen that you may want to put on this summer. First TV show I'm going to recommend is Only Murders in the Building. You've probably heard of this. I think it's on Hulu. It stars Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez. And it's fun and fascinating. And yeah, highly recommend that one. The next one is Rutherford Falls, starring Ed Helms as Nathan Rutherford and Janish Mading, I believe is how you say her name, as Regan Wells and... Someone who I love, Terry Thomas, played by Michael Gray Eyes, as the owner of a Native American casino. It's just, it's a great show. It's on Peacock. I think there are two seasons out. I, I really like that one. So Rutherford Falls. And then last TV show that I watched recently and really enjoyed was Ms. Marvel, because I'm a nerd. 
but also because in watching this young Pakistani American teen become a superhero, I was reminded of some of my childhood friends who, you know, were Indian American kids. And it's just a fascinating, great show. It's on Disney Plus if you have that. Then when it comes to movies, if you've heard of Michelle Yao in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once being great, it's all true. It's a weird movie, but it's a great one. So I would recommend you checking that out. That's Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And then my last movie recommendation is going to be for a movie on Netflix called RRR. That's letter R. I believe it stands for Rise, Roar, Revolt. And it is bananas in the best way. It is essentially like a Bollywood take on an alternate history where two real-life historical Indian revolutionaries meet and have really wacky adventures. The battle scenes are incredible. The dance scenes are incredible. It costs a lot of money to make, and it all was worth it. So yes, RRR was a great adventurous movie about these two Indian revolutionaries, and it's a revenge fantasy, too, against evil British Raj officials. It's great. All right. Well, I hope that you do get a chance this summer to rest and restore. So that was a lot of recommendations to take in. But don't worry if you missed the name of anything that I mentioned, because I will include a list of all of my recommendations in the show notes. We are going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. And when we return, I'll be telling you a little bit about this interview with Mary Ziegler, which I think you will want to listen to. Welcome back to this episode of the Modern Law Library. I wanted to resurface this interview that I did in 2018 with Mary Ziegler. She's the author of the book Beyond Abortion, Roe v. Wade and the Battle for Privacy. So one of the reasons I thought that re-airing this episode would be very useful is that in this conversation we had back in 2018, what we were talking about was the various other ways that Roe had been used as a precedent in areas like privacy arguments for access to experimental drugs or euthanasia or personal data security or sex worker rights. These are all things that also relied on Roe v. Wade. And since Roe v. Wade has been overturned by Dobbs, I just think these are more areas we need to look to to see if they need to be buttressed in the wake of Roe v. Wade having been overturned. So I hope that you enjoy re-listening to this episode. Please remember it is 2018, so we did not know the future, but we do mention what could happen if Roe v. Wade is overturned. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Professor Mary Ziegler, author of the book Beyond Abortion, Roe v. Wade, and the Battle for Privacy. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, we are at the 45th anniversary, I believe, of Roe v. Wade this year. Is this one of the reasons you decided to revisit this court decision? It is, and, and this book kind of grew naturally out of my first book. So when I was in law school, uh, we used history in part to study whether lawyers can change the world looking at past examples in effect to see if using the courts had worked as lawyers had hoped or as social movements had hoped or had backfired. 
And most of the examples we used involved civil rights. So, you know, Brown versus Board of Education. And I was a sort of young feminist law student. So I kept waiting for when we would study the aftermath of Roe and we didn't. So I sort of unwisely thought I would take up that task myself. You know, I was 25 or something. So I had no idea what I was actually getting myself into. And when I was research for my first book, which was more exclusively about the abortion debate, I kept noticing all of these other social movements and attorneys in other contexts who were using Roe in ways that were very unfamiliar to me. And so that made me curious what was going on in that context and what that said both about Roe's legacy and about what we mean when we talk about the right to privacy. Just to sort of begin at the beginning, we use Roe v. Wade as just a shorthand term that we throw out there and we think it just means abortion rights. And a lot of people, Mm -hmm. probably most people, have not read the decision or don't understand the nuances. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions the public has about the actual legal decision Roe v. Wade? Well, I think Roe v. Wade itself has sort of had a remarkably long life. And our lawyer members of the audience will understand this because Roe itself isn't even entirely the law. And often when politicians or members of the media discuss abortion rights in the Supreme Court, they talk about overruling Roe. Uh, They don't talk about subsequent decisions that radically modified Roe, like Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So I think probably the largest misconception is that Roe is still the law. When it comes to Roe, the original decision, I think people often equate Roe with a woman's right to choose. That's often what you would see in protest marches and so on. The actual original opinion said a great deal about physicians' rights, or at least physicians' advice in consultation with women. So it was a much more, I think, medical opinion than it was a women's liberation opinion. And to readers at the time, and I think now it can come across almost as sort of paternalistic. So I think in that way, there were potential readings of Roe at the time and probably even now that don't line up as much with a kind of sex equality reading that we might be more familiar with. And what was in the 1970s sort of the initial response to Roe v. Wade? I, you know, I I grew up in the the 80s, 90s. And so I'm not sure that I have a very clear picture of how it was originally received. How was it originally received and how may that reception have changed over the years? Sure. So when when Roe was initially handed down, it was a privacy decision. So the court said that the right to privacy was broad enough to encompass a woman's decision to end her pregnancy. So I think that from the very beginning, social movement activists and lawyers understood that Roe the actual opinion was limited. And of course, as many people know, Roe the actual opinion was the subject of criticism pretty much the moment it was handed down, including from commentators who were generally sympathetic to the idea of legal abortion. But I think at the same time, people in a lot of different causes recognized that the court's privacy language could be transformed and reappropriated and used in a lot of interesting ways. And those ways weren't limited in any way to the abortion context. So some social movement members were interested in changing the laws regarding sexual intimacy. So things involving discrimination against gays and lesbians or bans on sodomy or fornication or living out of marriage with your boyfriend. Groups involved with those issues said that if there was a right to control your own body, which Roe hadn't actually said, again, they were redefining Roe, then that right extended to what you did in the privacy of your bedroom. Other groups were even more disconnected from the context of sex and reproduction. These were groups that were interested in things like 
rights for patients to use unconventional medical therapies like unproven cancer drugs or acupuncture. There were groups involving former or current patients receiving mental health treatment who wanted to make Roe stand for a right to make your own medical decisions free of chemical interference. People interested in end-of-life decision-making and the right to die who thought that Roe should stand for privacy and making certain kinds of key decisions, regardless of whether they had anything to do with reproduction. And interestingly, some of the people who were using Roe in this way were not left-leaning or progressive. They included groups like the Committee for Freedom of Choice and Cancer Therapy, which was sort of affiliated with the John Birch Society, which was a right-leaning group. And uh, Barry Goldwater, who was interested in making Roe stand for right to control your data, was, of course, you know, kind of a lion of the right. So at the time, Roe became a part of a lot of very interesting conversations about privacy. How that's changed over time, of course, is probably more familiar to listeners because Roe has become synonymous with abortion and to some synonymous with a kind of judicial activism or judicial overreaching that the court wants to avoid, both for practical and principled reasons. And how that even happened as its own kind of interesting history. It wasn't an accident that that happened, because even though commentators in academia had been skeptical of Rose reasoning from the outset, that hadn't really resonated politically until the 80s and 90s, when um, both Republican political leaders and members of the pro-life or anti-abortion movement deliberately set out to make judicial activism and Roe synonyms and to do that with actual voters, not just with people within the academy. Now, I'd love to dive into some of the individual stories of these movements that are using Roe v. Wade or have used Roe v. Wade to advance their cause. You mentioned something that um, I've heard people call the right to try, and I believe that there's current legal discussions going on about this right now on whether or not someone should be allowed to try an experimental drug if the FDA has not approved it. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about that specific path and how Roe came to be used in that argument? Sure. So um, in the 70s, as many readers might know, cancer was even scarier than it is now. And that was the primary kind of battlefield where this use of Roe emerged. So mortality rates for cancer were dramatically higher than they are now. And that helped to spawn a lot of interest in experimental drugs, including kind of unproven, potentially dangerous, but probably just useless drugs. A movement sprang up around this drug called Laetril. And Laetril had been around for some time. The FDA had been trying to regulate it. And there literally evolved sort of smuggling rings of people who would go to get Laetril from Mexico and hide it in car parts and in their clothes. And there were doctors who prescribed Laetril illegally, and then when they were prosecuted or had their medical licenses stripped or so on, they invoked Roe to say um, both that physicians had a right to practice medicine as they saw fit, but also that Roe stood for the idea that patients had a right to make decisions. So just as women had a right to terminate their pregnancies, even when society disapproved, patients had a right to pursue an unproven medical treatment especially when there was no real valid alternative. That was something patients argued as well. And patients groups made this argument. Uh, Groups that specifically championed Laetrile made this argument. And alternative medical practitioners across the spectrum started invoking it too, including people practicing acupuncture, even though I think at the heart of it was Laetrile because Laetrile wound up sparking a movement to legalize that specific drug in over 20 states. It created a bunch of litigation, including a case that reached the U.S. Supreme Court. 
So the idea of patients' rights to pursue um, unproven treatment became closely connected both to Rome and to Laetrile. Now, when I read the section, it did occur to me, you mention the AIDS crisis in a couple different places in this book mm-hmm. and, and how Roe v. Wade ended up being used both for right-to-die arguments and, you know, as you said, with sexual liberty arguments against discrimination. Was that also a consideration when people were desperate for reliable HIV treatment? And could you talk a little bit about how Roe v. Wade was used during the height of the AIDS crisis? So uh, Roe at the height of the AIDS crisis played less of a role in part because Well, I think for two reasons. One, because by the 80s, especially later 80s, Roe had become kind of a symbol of the political left. So the kind of bipartisan use of Roe that I was describing by Barry Goldwater and and folks like him dated primarily to the earlier 70s when political party realignment around abortion hadn't really firmed up. And when the equation of privacy row and abortion wasn't really solidified in people's minds either. So as that changed and row and abortion and privacy became kind of banners carried by the Democratic Party and the political left, it was harder, I think, or less common for people in a kind of broader medical rights movement to invoke privacy or row. It would be less politically beneficial to do so. I think also by then, the movement to get rights for AIDS patients, or even just to protect gays and lesbians against discrimination in the context of AIDS had moved beyond privacy arguments, at least in part. And I think the reasons for this were that arguments about a right to choose or a right to privacy based on Roe had kind of uncomfortable undertones in the context of AIDS. People who were, I think, unsympathetic to AIDS victims liked arguing that choice was involved in AIDS, essentially that AIDS was the aftermath or the effect of a bad lifestyle choice. So uh, groups that were seeking rights for AIDS patients didn't want to open themselves up to that kind of counterattack. They also recognized that in the context of AIDS, you needed more support from the state. And earlier choice arguments, at least in that context, based on Roe, had been about asking the government to leave people alone. So when groups helping gays and lesbians and AIDS patients recognized that they needed to change course, they started talking more about things like sexual orientation discrimination and less about privacy. Probably the only caveat there is, of course, that people in the 70s had recognized that you could talk about privacy and talk about assistance from the state, that there wasn't necessarily a contradiction there. But at various points in time, social movement activists thought there was or thought that there was a too high a political cost for framing an argument in terms of privacy. That's very interesting. Could you elaborate on that a little bit, that there is not a contradiction between privacy law and having government involvement? I think groups obviously wanted to invoke the right to privacy and invoke Roe because they thought it was a useful precedent, but they didn't believe that there would have to be a contradiction. So you might wonder kind of legally and politically how that's possible. I think to some extent, groups were arguing that without government support, privacy rights were hollow, that you needed to have kind of the means to effectuate a decision or that decision didn't mean anything. And to some extent, it also meant that when people were invoking the right to privacy, they weren't always depending exclusively on litigation or the courts. They were sometimes invoking Roe in other contexts, like when speaking to legislators or regulators, when they were actually asking for some kind of affirmative government involvement. So I think in that way, there's a kind of a history of the right to privacy that most of us don't pay attention to because we think of 
privacy more as a negative right or protection from government interference. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. And when we return, you'll hear more from my 2018 conversation with Mary Ziegler. What this is reminding me of in today's news is some of the recent scandals involving, say, Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and a lot of people Mm -hmm. wanting now government to step in and regulate to stop private companies from being able to use personal data in certain ways. Mm -hmm. So that's very interesting. I'm going to take a little bit of a detour again and talk about the right to refuse treatment. Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting one to me. Could you talk a little bit about that debate and how Roe was used in that debate? Sure. So I think the the analogy between abortion and the right to refuse treatment went back to really even pre-Roe to the 1960s, because there had been a, a movement, what had called itself a kind of movement in favor of euthanasia, even in earlier decades, kind of in the early 20th century. And as euthanasia became synonymous with stuff like eugenic legal reform and discrimination against the disabled, people who wanted to recognize the right to refuse treatment at the end of life began looking for new ways of talking and thinking about what they were doing. And the comparison to abortion made a lot of intuitive sense because both involved what some would view as life and death decision making, both involved what looked like patient autonomy in certain crucial matters. So even before Roe, groups that were interested in the right to die described themselves as champions of a right to privacy or right to choose. After Roe came down, use of those arguments became more common. It became more central in terms of both visibility and use of resources. And interestingly, when there became more, I guess, of a debate about end-of-life decision-making and the right to refuse treatment, when groups were opposed to it, both abortion foes and some disability rights organizations, the relationship between abortion and end-of-life decision-making took center stage. So those who were arguing for a right to refuse treatment would say essentially that the circumstances were very similar. Just as people had a right to make decisions about whether to become parents, they had a right to decide whether to live or die, and that the right to privacy, as Roe defined it, touched on your interest in how you saw yourself, what your identity was, your quality of life, and so on. People who were opposed to recognition of a right to refuse treatment said either if they were anti-abortion that the situation was similar and that there should be a right to privacy in neither circumstance because the interests involved just simply weren't strong enough to threaten the state's interest in protecting life. And disability rights activists, I think more interestingly, many of whom were pro-choice, thought that the two examples or the two situations were totally different. So they often argued that in the disability rights context or in the end-of-life context, people were being given a right to refuse treatment largely based on stereotypes about disability or incapacity. So they argued that people who were not disabled would never be asked if they wanted to end their lives in the same way that people who were disabled were asked. And by contrast, they said stereotypes about gender went the other way in the abortion context. So abortion statutes often rested, they thought, on stereotypes about women. So if you were interested in uprooting stereotypes, these activists argued, you would not recognize the right to something like aid in dying or right to refuse treatment. You would actually be more concerned about protecting the disabled from such a right. So it it was interesting because you saw people kind of playing out whether the right to privacy is the same in different political contexts. 
it's difficult to have a conversation about this book without jarring transitions because this, you know, Roe v. Wade, as you say, has been used in so many different areas and, and contexts. Right. But here's another jump. I'd like to discuss with you the so-called rescue movement and the opposition to Roe v. Wade and the kinds of ongoing litigation that's taking place over, say, protesting boundaries. What did you find in your research were some of the most important and influential cases about conscientious objectors to abortion? Yeah, well, I think in some ways, conscientious objectors were significant in two ways. So one of those ways is sort of better understood. And that's because in that groups like Operation Rescue wound up generating a whole bunch of cases that found their way to the Supreme Court that some of your listeners might be familiar with. So those included First Amendment cases about laws creating things like bubble or buffer zones around clinics. The Supreme Court, of course, has upheld some of these laws and struck down others. So in that way, groups in the clinic blockade or rescue movement helped kind of shape the contours of the First Amendment, especially when it came to abortion clinics and just traditional public forum doctrine in the context of the First Amendment. The blockade movement generated litigation under RICO about whether sort of organized anti-abortion protest blockade groups were in fact racketeers. They generated litigation about whether clinic blockaders were violating the Ku Klux Klan Act and were discriminating against women as a group. And all of those things ended up at the Supreme Court. So in that way, the blockade movement was sort of a tremendous source of work for lawyers and made a difference to the interpretation of key civil rights and criminal statutes, as well as to the First Amendment. I think the blockade movement also played an interesting role in how we understand Roe. At the time, there was a pretty big push by anti-abortion groups, um, including but not limited to the blockade movement. The blockade movement was a sort of part of the anti-abortion movement that had an uncomfortable relationship with pro-life lawyers who were interested in strategies we might be more familiar with now, essentially kind of incrementally attacking Roe by introducing laws that restricted access to abortion and eventually kind of set the stage for the overruling of Roe. The blockade movement and the, I guess you'd call it sort of the mainstream or law-oriented anti-abortion movement didn't always get along the best, but both of them kind of settled on an argument that Roe was an activist decision or that Roe was a lawless decision. So for the blockade movement, that meant essentially that Roe didn't, and civil laws like trespass laws enforcing it, didn't deserve respect at all. So that if you were participating in a blockade and violating a trespassing ordinance or violating some other kind of law, that was justified both as a matter of scripture and as a matter of civil law because Roe simply had no legal force and they would invoke the necessity defense as part of this argument. And that was used also in arguments when people were murdered and clinics were bombed as well, which was a very dark chapter. Right. Yes, absolutely. So Paul Hill had actually murdered an abortion doctor and his bodyguard invoked the necessity defense as well. So there was a kind of, I guess you could argue, Roe's supposed lawlessness as a justification for lawbreaking and even for violence. The more law-oriented anti-abortion movement rejected those arguments and I think recognized that those arguments were incredibly politically damaging. But they made their own points about what they saw as the activism or lawlessness of Roe. So they said, we're not asking to ignore civil law, and we're not saying we have the final word about what the law means. The court gets to decide what the law means. 
but we're telling the court that Roe is an activist and lawless decision and should be overruled. So that argument wound up having a lot more staying power and, of course, was embraced by the Reagan administration, the George H.W. and W. Bush administrations, and now, of course, by the Trump administration. So there was a debate even within the anti-abortion movement about how to convince the public that Roe was an activist decision and then what it in fact meant if you were an abortion opponent that Roe was a lawless decision. But what emerged from it was, I think, what's been a kind of political issue ever since, which is not just that Roe was wrong morally, but that pro-life folks would argue that Roe was anti-democratic and lawless as well. So it's been 45 years, as you said, so many different legal decisions have either altered or relied on Roe. Mm -hmm. If these activists got their dearest wish and tomorrow the Supreme Court issued an opinion saying we overturn Roe v. Wade, what do you anticipate that would look like in the legal sphere? Well, I, I don't think that much would change if, if you're talking about Roe as a source of abortion. So we're really as a source of privacy rights either. So in, in writing the book, I was interested in how differently we could have created a privacy jurisprudence, how differently people thought of privacy. And that was true, whether it was sort of privacy being more of a left rather than a right wing concern, privacy being at least constitutional privacy rights being so tied up with family and reproduction rather than other considerations that you know we could have had a privacy jurisprudence that resonated with people on the right and the left. We could have had a privacy jurisprudence that spoke to the interests of consumers and patients. We could have had a privacy jurisprudence that dealt more with data breaches like in things like Cambridge Analytica. So I think sometimes history can kind of illuminate lost possibilities and alternative paths in interesting ways at a time when it seems sort of like we're bogged down when we think about privacy. But the path we took essentially was that Rose stopped being raw material for interesting ideas about privacy quite as much sometime between the 80s and the 90s. So in that way, you know, overruling Roe wouldn't change how well or how much we think about privacy. I don't even really think it would change dramatically access to abortion. It would make a difference, but as most of our listeners know, there are already tremendous differences in access to abortion between states, and states that, broadly speaking, would be considered blue states or pro-choice states provide broad access to abortion. States that would be considered pro-life or often red states often limit access to abortion very severely. So you have, you know, one abortion clinic in a state or something like that. So I think that the the reality that's been made possible by Planned Parenthood versus Casey is not that dissimilar from the reality that was in place before Roe. Of course, there are differences in the sense that you know, states could theoretically introduce much more severe penalties or could punish women for abortion. So states that are unsympathetic to abortion access could make life a lot harder for people seeking abortion. But I think the kind of patchwork of different laws across states is something that we've already seen and that would remain sort of roughly the same, even if it were to be overruled. I thought that the way you concluded the book was just, you know, a really wonderful summation. Would you mind reading us a short passage from your conclusion? Yeah, absolutely. When we understand this history, we can see that Rose's legacy has been both misunderstood and underestimated. Raw material taken from the court's decision figured centrally in an ongoing and not always visible debate about what a right to choose ought to mean. Those seeking important legal initiatives that address inequalities of sexual orientation, gender, disability, consumer rights, and age sometimes relied on Roe to frame their aims. At a time when the idea of self-determination seemed crucially important to many social movements, Roe was often there. 
The decision became part of the agenda of activists who disagreed with one another about the role of government and the meaning of privacy and inequality. When privacy politics were up for grabs, many of those who wanted a say in what the future would look like turned to Roe to help articulate their goals. Even after those debating the right to privacy no longer turned to Roe, a group of activists and politicians made the decision part of a vibrant discussion about popular interest in the Constitution and in the judiciary. In recent decades, debate about judicial activism has often revolved around Roe. The court's decision repeatedly comes up in public discussion about what kind of judges should join the Supreme Court and when the courts have overstepped. While we may know about Roe's role in abortion politics, the decision's legacy is far more complex. The experiences chronicled in these pages open a window onto an intense debate about the right to privacy that continues to this day. Those looking for a more expansive idea of constitutional autonomy need not look far back to recover ideas about choice that hold out promise in areas that we might not expect. Many tried to make the right to choose their own. They were civil libertarians and cancer sufferers, small government conservatives and sex workers, feminists and physicians. The story of our own right to privacy cannot be told without them. Well, Mary, thank you so much for sharing that with us and for joining us today on the Modern Law Library. Again, for my listeners, if you'd like to pick up this book, it is Beyond Abortion, Roe v. Wade and the Battle for Privacy. And I've been joined by Professor Mary Ziegler. Mary, if listeners were interested in reading more of your work or in reaching out, how should they do that? Do you have any social media presence or or websites you'd like to point them to? Sure, yeah. Um, You can follow me at at Mary underscore Ziegler, Z is in zebra, I-E-G-L-E-R-F-S-U. You can read my first book, which is called After Roe, The Lost History of the Abortion Debate. And I've written a lot of op-eds and works that are available for free about abortion and privacy. So if you even Google me, I'm sure you'll pull up some op-eds that discuss where the abortion wars are heading and how the right to privacy was once so different. In January, our readers may have uh, read an op-ed in the New York Times that I remember reading out, and I will link to that on our page on abajournal.com so that anyone interested in reading that can do so. Thanks again to our listeners for joining us. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review in your favorite podcast listening service.